welcome to Storytelling. Marcus Garvey once said that a people without the knowledge of their past history, origin and culture is like a tree without roots. This week's guest is a publisher and an author of several works of history, including the history of Nigeria with an earlier book entitled A Fatherless People. In this episode, we discuss his latest book, A Slave Ship Called Jesus. Please welcome Deli Ogun. Hello, Delhi, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Delhi. Delhi, your book, A Slave Ship Called Jesus, could you explain to us the naming of the book? It's a provocative title, and deliberately so. I did want to jar the audience slightly. Now, some Christians have reacted thinking that I was rubbishing Christianity. What I wanted to bring to their attention was that there was a ship that was deployed in the slave trade that was named the Jesus of Lubeck. It was actually the realization that some of these vessels were bearing names that should be revered that caused me to look in this direction, the state of Christianity during the slave trade. The ship in question was called the Jesus of Lubeck. But there was another ship that was called the Grace of God. Now, when I'm reading into the slave trade and I'm coming across vessels deployed in this evil trade, this evil enterprise, bearing these sort of devout names, Jesus of Lubeck and the Grace of God, it sets the inquiring mind thinking, what is going on? So that was the inspiration for the title of the book. The ship in question, the Jesus of Lubeck, was actually owned by the royal family. It was a ship that Henry VIII had bought uh, sometime prior to English entry into the slave trade. It was his daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, that chartered that ship, the Jesus of Lubeck, to the pioneer of the English slave trade, a fellow called Sir John Hawkins. He used that ship on his second voyage, slaving voyage, and also the third. And that second slaving voyage was remarkable because what he did, he sailed to Sierra Leone and he kidnapped 400 people on the coast, sailed off with them to the island which we now know as Haiti. And there he sold them for a handsome return. And when he got back to England, the trade which the Queen Elizabeth I had initially frowned upon and condemned, all of a sudden she was converted to the enterprise. So this was the background to the title of this book, the provocative title, A Slave Ship Called Jesus because it challenges us to think about the 
the state of mind of those who were engaging in this trade. And then when you also bear in mind that the church owned the slave plantations, and much worse than that, that the whole trade was conducted under license from various popes, granting exclusive license initially to the Portuguese for the enslavement of the African peoples, and a similar license, a parallel license, granted to the Spanish for the importation of our enslaved peoples into the Americas. All questions then arise about the state of faith and the attitude of believers to this trade. So that was the genesis of the title of the book. So you start with a quote in your book from William Wilberforce, and it reads as follows. Never, never will we desist till we have wiped away this scandal from the Christian name, till we have released ourselves from the load of guilt under which we at present labour, and till we have extinguished every trace of this bloody traffic, which our posterity, looking back to the history of these enlightened times, will scarcely believe to have suffered to exist so long a disgrace and dishonour to our country. Can you explain the importance of starting with this quote? (laughs) Yes, it frames it, doesn't it? Because this was the fellow who was most associated with England's reputation as far as the abolition of the trade is concerned. And the important line is actually the very first line. Never, never will we desist till we have wiped away this scandal from the Christian name. That goes to the heart of the matter. These were Christians. This was a period, we're talking about 1560s. That's when England uh, went into the trade. I mean, the Portuguese had been in the trade from the mid-1400s. But England went into the trade around 1560. And at that time, everybody was a churchgoer. It's easy to lose sight of that. Everybody was going, worshipping on Sundays. It was almost compulsory. Now people don't go to church, but then these were extremely pious peoples. And then you're then struck with a paradox between those who worship the Most High, engaging in the Most Low in terms of the treatment of their fellow human beings. And... That was the paradox that I was looking to get to the bottom of. And one of my main conclusions was that how they were able to reconcile it was that the trade was largely carried on offshore. You see, the enslaved Africans weren't being brought into England as such. Yes, the odd one or two might be domestic servants. But the the real trade was being conducted far removed from the prying eyes of the church-going peoples of Britain and of France. So it was all taking place in what we now know as the Caribbean islands, in the Americas. Is that The modern equivalent is, if you think about Guantanamo Bay and the conditions in which the prisoners were held, far removed from the prying eyes of the everyday American. That really was the parallel. These were like concentration camps. So it was easy 
to be going to church on the Sunday, and even the members of the clergy to be worshipping, conducting services week in, week out, whilst in those plantations, great evil was being conducted. And the other thing that the, the quote brings out is this legacy that has been left, the load of guilt. He speaks of, so we have released ourselves from the load of guilt under which we at present labour until we have extinguished every trace of this bloody traffic, which our posterity, looking back to the history of these enlightened times, will scarcely believe to have been suffered to exist so long, a disgrace and dishonour to our country. That quote speaks to the challenges of today, which is the efforts and the extremes to which government goes to keep the real story of this evil episode off the school curriculum. Because if it was taught as it should be taught, those who are strolling around with the air of racial superiority will be hiding their heads in shame. The stain under which they will be living will be such that, in my view, much of the racism that we see today would actually diminish if the true story was told, because it would be a humbling experience for the people of Britain and the people of Europe for them to know the true story. People carry themselves around at present with a lot of swagger because the real story is hidden. Contrast Nazi Germany. If you look at Nazi Germany, there's a great degree of humility because they weren't allowed to hide the story behind the Holocaust. And this is why they've gone out of their way to sort of have a rebirth, if you like. But in contrast, Germany wasn't very active in, in fact, did not have a role in the slave trade. Those who did, because they've not been held to account in terms of that history being put out into the open for the whole world to see, that, I believe, is what feeds a lot of arrogance, which feeds the racism that we're confronting at the current time. I just want to ask you, because you did a lot of research into this subject, and you wrote this book within a year, so it's a lot of work to do within a year. What was your main inspiration for putting together this book? I had it in mind from around 2017, because that was when I published A History of Nigeria, which started their story in that book. Uh, started with abolition of the slave trade. Now, in the early drafts of that history of Nigeria, which is titled A Fatherless People, I was actually going to start the story much earlier because I wanted our people, and not just our own people, I wanted the world to understand the full story of Western interaction with Africa. And the real beginning as far as the European side was concerned, it started not long before the European slave trade began. I said not long before because the early trips by the Portuguese to the west coast of Africa were not slave raiding exercises. They were more sort of reconnaissance, real trading relationships. But having 
through the course of those early visits, having assessed the state of Africa at that time, that we were actually very peaceful peoples. We were not weaponized, as some of the narratives have suggested. When they now came back, that is when our people started being kidnapped and shipped off into this terrible condition. So my inspiration was to help our people to know the truth, the truth about the state of Africa in the beginning. And if I might share with you a passage that was particularly striking because struggling with the narrative that Africans were always killing themselves, that was the conventional narrative, that any book you picked up, it was always the story of the Africans were always at war, fighting, raping, cannibalism, and all that. That was the the narrative that many of us were fed. But in the course of the research, I was very happy to come across evidence of the true states of our land. And here's this passage. The European voyagers, when they first visited the coasts of Western Africa, found there, for the most part, a quiet, peaceable, and contented people basking in the sunshine in harmless idleness, unprovoked to make war upon one another because they had nothing to desire, and receiving strangers with the unsuspecting truthfulness which is observed in the birds and animals of new countries when for the first time they come in contact with man. So that was the state or the true state of the west coast of Africa. It was peaceful. They had nothing to fight each other for. And that's what left us exposed to the horrors of slavery and enslavement. Because, as I said, after those early reconnaissance visits, seeing the laid-back condition of our way of life, which was a product of the abundance of nature, these were blessed lands with ample food, and other means of sustenance. So we had nothing to struggle for. Contrast, as I say, the narratives that are sold in the conventional books, the narrative, these guys were always killing themselves. So it was actually what was exported to Africa was the barbarism, the weapons of destruction, and the conflict that had consumed the whole of Europe. That is what was actually exported to what up to then had been such a peaceful land. And it's still within Africa now in terms of the conflict, which is still currently there. Well, yes, the legacy continues because from the onset of that relationship, it was always one of extraction. It's almost as if you think about how the relationship between man and a coal mine, the whole relationship is one of extracting, taking out, taking out, not putting anything in, taking out. And those who were doing the extracting uh, knew that extraction was most profitably conducted if there was turbulence amongst the the peoples on the ground. So weapons were supplied to one side to go and fight the other side. Everything that was done during the slave trade just continues now. Now it's not Africans that are being shipped out, but it's the resources that have been shipped out. And it needs similar ethnic tension in order for those resources to be accessed most cheaply. And so the story continues. 
and this is why the book is important for our people to understand the root of this experience, the root of the story, the origins of it. And then they can see how the same thing continues, as you say, uh, until this very day. And one thing that the book highlights is the fact that the focus isn't on the abolition, it's on the actual fight for freedom, as you explain in the book, has been underplayed. Do you want to expand further on that? Yes. I mean, we all know about the Wilberforces and the other characters who campaigned for the abolition of the slave trade, the Granville Sharps, etc. They've been given due credit in the domain history books. But when I was doing the research, I was struck by the role of our peoples themselves in their fight for freedom. Because one almost, you know, we all think about this. If I was there, I would have fought. Why didn't they fight? That was always the commentary that we ran into. But that was only because we have not been told the story, the true story of how abolition came to pass. It was actually the fighting on the part of the Africans that led to abolition. The trade and the industry was no longer sustainable. It started with our people's fighting experience in the American War of Independence, because what's the whole slavery and slave trade was premised upon two fundamental rules or prohibitions. The first prohibition was that you never teach the Africans how to use weapons. Because, of course, once they know how to use weaponry and they can use that weaponry effectively, then it becomes very difficult to enslave them. There's now a balance of power, if you like. The second fundamental rule was that you never taught them how to read because if you teach them how to read, you effectively free them. It's very difficult to enslave an informed person. And so these are the two fundamentals. Now, the beginning of the breakdown of those prohibitions was the American War of Independence, is what I explained in the book, when both sides were now enlisting the enslaved Africans to fight for them in that epic struggle. At the end of the fighting, you now had a large number of Africans who were experienced in the use of what was then modern weaponry. And this carried through into the emancipation struggle in neighboring Haiti. And there's a passage that I would like to share with you, which really brings this out. This was one of the critical fights in Haiti. The uprising had been carefully planned. Two lead men of different plantations had converged in the stillness of the night. The leader of the revolt was the Jamaican-born Maroon, Dutty Bookman, an Ogun, a Yoruba god of war, worshipper. In a high voice, Bookman chanted a prayer, his body shaking from head to foot, his voice that of a priest rather than a man. He spoke in Creole. Good God who made the sun to shine above us, who rouses the waves and makes the storm, who watches us through hid, though hidden in the clouds who knows all that the white man does. The God of the white man inspires him to crime. Our God leads us to do good. Our God demands vengeance. He will direct our arms and help us. 
throw away the symbol of the God of the whites who has caused so many tears. Good God, give us the liberty which is in all our hearts. These was the struggle of a people's who had no help from outside. They were trapped on this island in Haiti. The weapons that they managed to get hold of were the ones that managed to seize off the slavers. And women, old and young, children, were involved in that struggle, that epic struggle. So it is fights like that that I wanted to share with the modern audience so that we get a more balanced narrative as far as this abolition issue is concerned. Not to underplay the role of the Granville Sharps, of the William Wilberforce, but then to bring into the limelight the role of the Toussaint Louvertures of Haiti, the Dutty Bookmans, the Sam Sharps of Jamaica. Their story needs to be told, and I hope I've done it justice to some extent. Now, I totally agree with you because this book isn't just for descendants of Africa, it's for everyone to read and for everyone to understand a different version of history that we have been taught over the years. Yep, very much so. I said the other day that when you think about the debate that's going on at present about the statues, you know, and the museums, the Edward Coulson statues, whether it was right to pull it down or leave it up, my attitude is that those statues are only a problem because the narrative that has been run, that's been pushed out, is an unbalanced story, is a sanitized story. If the true story were told with all its horrors and was told to all the people, even the Colson family will be the first to say they want to take the statue down. But we would be saying, I say, leave the statue up. Just tell the true story. Change the curriculum. Tell the real history. And then, if they want to leave a Colson statue up, uh, the rest of us who frown upon that evil, the evil of that trade, will be able to look at it and say, there stands the figure of a monster who preyed on the souls of fellow human beings. So the problem is not the statues. The problem is the narrative, the unbalanced narrative. And the whole object of this book is for us to sort of rebalance it, to give a fuller and a rounder account of what really happened, to get away from from the false narratives of Africans selling their own people, because that's one of the issues that I wanted to get to. I said, you know, the way it's told is as if there were market stalls in Africa before the Europeans came where we had our people paraded for sale. Whereas the reality was that having begun with kidnapping, when our people got wise that when those ships come, beware, what they then did was to enlist some of those coastal peoples, supply them with weapons and other inducements, effectively bribed to now weaponize them to go after interland peoples. So this is how the conflicts were provoked. And the legacy continues, even as we speak. Delhi, I thank you very much for writing this book, A Slave Ship Called Jesus. I appreciate the time you have taken to share this book with us. Debbie, thanks for the opportunity. If you would like to order a copy of the book, 
a slave ship called Jesus, then please follow the link in the show notes.